Thank you, Trav. All right, everyone, if you um, have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Isaiah. That's in the Old Testament. It's pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. It's going to be after the Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, The book of Isaiah, chapter 25. Isaiah 25. Uh, Today, we are particularly remembering the most significant day in human history. That's what we're about to do. That's what we do every Sunday, but we're going to think especially on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, As you're turning there, again, if you're new here, my name is Bo Beckendam. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I'm so excited to to proclaim to you um, some really good news. I have some really good news for you today. I don't know if you know that, uh, but it's the best thing that's ever happened um, in human history. And so um, we will look together at Isaiah 25. This this was written 2,700 years ago. Think about that. 2,700 years ago, and it has never been more relevant than it is right now. This is very, very important, very wonderful news ahead of us in this text. So let me read Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. This text is a promise that God is giving through his prophet Isaiah for those who have trusted in Christ, have repented from their sin and are trusting in Christ, this is your future. Isaiah 25, verse 6. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. And so God, we thank you that right now as we open the Bible, we hear what you have proclaimed. We have great confidence in this truth because it came from you, God. We're so thankful that today we can open the Bible, which is the word of God, and know that we are not considering the thoughts or opinions of men or women but we are hearing from God himself. So we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that now you would encourage those who are in you, what lays ahead for them. And I I pray, Lord, that you would, in the best way possible, you would would give those who have yet to trust in you almost like a smell of of the, the feast that is available to them if they would just come to Christ and put their trust in Jesus. So we pray that you would, you would give them a taste today of the goodness that is available in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we think about Easter, typically we're always looking back. We're, we're reflecting on the past. We're remembering what Jesus has objectively accomplished 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross for the sins of his people. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. 
And for all of eternity, we will be looking back at Easter. We will be looking back at the day Jesus rose from the grave. From the grave. But today, we're gonna view Easter a little bit differently. We're gonna consider the importance of Easter for your future, for your future. Because what Jesus did 2,000 years ago is actually, hear me, it's just the beginning. It's just a foretaste. It's an appetizer of what he will do on the last day when he comes again. What, what is ahead for those who are in Christ is truly, it's so incredible, you wouldn't believe it if not God himself said, this is what is awaiting you. And so God has given us in Isaiah 25, he has actually given us through the prophet four promises, four promises that, that we can cling to as we wait for Christ to raise all of us from the dead together. Now, as we consider, as we approach Isaiah, as I mentioned, it's 2,700 years old. It, this book was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. In fact, the prophecies in this book are so incredible that really smart scholars say there's no way this was written 700 years before. It had to have been edited later by some, you know, sneaky guys after they, they saw, oh, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and then they changed it, and then they passed it around because there's no way these prophecies could have come true. And if you're into this kind of thing, uh, just about 50 years ago, they found these preserved scrolls of Isaiah in the Middle East that date to about 250 years before Jesus was born, and they're verbatim what we have now. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in case you're like, this is too good to be true, well, it's too good to be true unless there's a God who can actually proclaim the future and what is to come. And that's what we have in our text. This is prophecy. These are promises of what God will do for his people. Now, when Isaiah got these prophecies, just to give you a little bit of like, okay, what are we about to look at? The world, Isaiah's world, the, the nation of Israel, it was about like our world is today. It was discouraging, it was depressing, there was political turmoil, there was moral turmoil, there was spiritual decay. And Isaiah came to warn the people of God that if they continue to turn away from God, it's, life is just gonna get really, really bad for them. But every once in a while, as he was proclaiming these warning judgments to the people of God, we would get these these prophecies, these chapters where he breaks in with hope that God will restore and redeem all things. That, that, I mean, picture this, if you were a godly person, but your nation was ungodly, well, you're all going down together. You're going down with them. You're in the ship that is sinking. And so what God is doing is providing hope for his people. Yes, you will go into exile. Yes, things will fall apart, but don't worry. A day is coming when I will make things right and you will have wonderful gifts from me. So as we approach this text, let's look together at four promises, four things God promises he will do. And these are four things that are possible as we will see every point of the way, they're possible because of what Jesus has done already for us. Number one, the first promise is this, God will celebrate. That's the first promise, God will celebrate. Now look with me again at verse six. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. I just want to stop there for a second and just consider what was just said. 
This is a future day. That's a future tense verb. If you look down at verse 9, it's, it's speaking to a future day. It will be said in that day. There is coming a day in your future, if you are in Christ, when God himself will prepare a banquet. Jesus looked forward to this day. In Matthew 8, 11, he says, there, the saints will feast with Abraham and Isaac on that day. When Jesus gave communion in Luke 22, he says, this is the last time I'm gonna enjoy this feast, this supper, until that day comes when I'll eat it again with you. And, and, and notice the words. It says, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish feast. If you can think back to the Old Testament, the saints would worship God by, by animal sacrifices. It's kind of strange, right? That's how they would worship. Rather than stand up here and, and be singing and preaching, they would bring an animal and they'd slaughter it. And then they'd splatter its blood all over the place and that was worship. The people of God would bring these animals, these sacrifices to God and present these things. They would prepare their offering and they would present it to God. And there was this funny thing about the offerings is that God made it clear there were some offerings that you actually could eat. So it's not a bad deal. You go make an offering, you, you smell you know, delicious smelling meat or you know, getting roasted and you're gonna feast with God. But God said, but the fat portions, the good stuff, the, the cut of steak that's delicious, you don't eat that, that part's for me. I get the fat portions. And it's this representation that we bring our best to God. This is for God. But do you know what's crazy about this feast? It's not the people preparing something for God. It's God himself preparing a feast for his people. And that word lavish feast can literally be translated fat. That word lavish means fat, a fat feast. It's like God's breaking the rules. It's like he's saying, hey, remember all that time, all those times you couldn't eat the fat? Well, come to this feast and I'm preparing for you a lavish feast. And notice who it's, who it's for. He's providing it for who? For all the people. If you lived in Old Testament times, that sacrificial system was for one people, one nation, the people of the Jews. And so if you wanted to worship Yahweh, you actually had to become Jewish. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised and you had to adopt all of these rules and regulations and you would become a Jew and then you could worship God. But there's something unique about this feast that God is preparing, it's for all people. It's for every tribe and tongue and nation. At that feast, there will be people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation. And they will be treated as the honored guests. As, it's as if God is having us over for dinner and he's providing the barbecue and he sets before the people the choice cuts of meat. And then he goes on to say, look at verse six, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, Where? on this mountain. Well, what's that all about? What's this mountain? Well, if you look back to 20, chapter 24, verse 23, it speaks of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. What's this mountain? Well, what's the point of saying this feast is, is on this mountain? Well, here's the point. This feast is for all peoples, but guess what? It's in one place. You have to come. It's a particular feast. You don't get to come to the feast on your own terms and your own way. The feast is happening somewhere and you have to come on God's terms, on this mountain, this mountain. And we're gonna draw out a little more the significance of this mountain as we work through. Now, one more thing as he 
describes this feast. It's prepared by God for all people on this mountain. And then he goes on to say, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. That aged wine is referring to wine made in a, a wooden casket. And towards the, 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 the inner lining of, a, of this keg would, would accumulate the, the flavor and even some of the like texture of the grapes. And the outside, it would often be called the dregs, and that's where all the flavor would come from. And it was speaking about wine that was sitting so long in these kegs that, that the flavor and taste was absolutely perfect. And then the, the, the meat with marrow, if you've ever had marrow from a steak, I mean, it's, it's almost too rich to eat. And then again, he says, aged wine. Speaking of wine, too, it's, it's full strength. And, and here's something that's just incredible. We, we, we don't read Hebrew, but if you were to read this verse in Hebrew seven times, a word ended in im, 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 im. And even when you would read this verse, it has a musical sound to it. It's, it's this prophecy of, it's like you can hear and smell and taste the feast, the clinking of silverware and glasses. I mean, this is a party of all parties, a celebration of all celebrations. You have never eaten better food or had a better drink or had better company than this feast. Now, what's the point? What's this all about? And why are we talking about this on Easter? What's the occasion we're celebrating? What's this feast all about? And here's the point. God is throwing a party for his son. God the Father is throwing a party for his son. His son, Jesus, was faithful. He went to the cross as a perfect, spotless lamb of God. He perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed God. He fulfilled everything God required of him. And rather than receiving the immediate benefit and blessing, he received on the cross what all the sinners deserved, the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. And Jesus died on that cross. And three days later, he rose again. And what God is preparing is a feast in honor of his son, a celebration for his son, a celebration where the guests who are invited are those who trust in his son. There's, there's so much imagery here. I, wanna, I wish I could just go to it all, but three times in the Bible, we see these occasions of feasts. Number one, it's this communion feast. If you can think back to Moses and how he went up on the mountain and he got the 10 commandments. Well, it, 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 part of that process, God said, I want you to get the 70 elders and I want you guys to come up on the mountain. And in Exodus 24, I, I have to read it. Exodus 24, verses nine through 11 Listen to what happens as God is communing with Moses and the leaders. Exodus 24, verse nine. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, meaning they should have died because they were in the presence of God. 
But what happened instead, it says, and they beheld God and they ate and drank. What's the point? The point is God is saying, come, come feast on me. I am better than anything this world has to offer. Communion with me is better than anything this world has to offer. Even the giving of my law, walking in obedience to me, is better than anything this world has to offer. So that's part of the idea. Okay, we're having communion, fellowship with God. But there's another picture in First Chronicles chapter 12, and I'll read that for you. There's another occasion for a feast in the Bible, and it's a coronation feast. Do you know what that means? That means a king has just been proclaimed. We have a king now. And what do you do to celebrate a king? It's a little strange. We can't, you know, it's so foreign to us Americans. We hardly celebrate when we get new presidents, but there are cultures when they throw great parties because they receive a new king. And when King David was enthroned, there was a feast. First Chronicles chapter 12, let me read just three verses here. First Chronicles 12, 12 uh, 38 through 40. And these, there's all these soldiers that he just lists. Being men of war who could draw up in battle lines came to this city Hebron with their whole heart to make David king of all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one heart to make David king. They were with David three days, eating and drinking for their relatives had prepared for them. There was a great feast for three days because they just received a king. Well, that's also what is in your future. God will say to us all, this is my son, your king. And we will feast because he is enthroned over all. And there's one more occasion, and I'll actually read out of Revelation 19 to see this one. There's one more reason in the Bible where we see these great feasts not just communion with God, not just the coronation of a king, but, but a wedding, a wedding. God is presenting his son to his bride. And on that last day, when the church rises from the dead, he will be pre- we will be presented to Jesus. And what do you do at a good wedding? One that, you know, is is not just paid for by a couple of teenagers and they throw a little something together. I mean, this is like a, a good wedding. One that's ex- as expensive as can be. You bring out all the best to celebrate this wedding. That is what is waiting for the people of God. Let me just read uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her cloth to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And hear it. Then he said, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Let me just tell you right now, You don't want to miss that wedding. Don't want to miss that wedding. And even right now, as you hear me, I am inviting you to the marriage supper of the Lamb to come to Jesus, to trust in Christ as the sufficient Savior of your soul, the one who 
died on the cross and rose again, that if you would believe and trust in him, you would be invited to the greatest celebration the world has ever known. And so God promises a day is coming when we will feast. We will celebrate like it's never been celebrated before. But here's the thing about that celebration. Here's the, actually the thing about, you know, may, maybe we're going to have, some of you are going to have a great lunch or dinner with family. I don't know if you, you know, get with family or friends together and you have a great feast. I don't know if you've had this experience, but if, if you step back a minute, there's something about even our feasts now that's bittersweet. Y- you have this feeling, I wonder if this is the last time we will all be together. And we rejoice, right? Like, praise God that so-and-so and so-and-so are still with us. Praise God, we're together right now. And so every time we throw a party, every time we have a feast, there's a little bit of this, like, ah, but it's gonna end. It's not gonna last. Are we gonna see each other again? And so the second promise that God makes to his people is, listen, do you know what's amazing about this feast? It doesn't end and you won't die. Let's look together at the second promise, and it's this, God will conquer death. God will conquer death. Let's read Isaiah 25, verses seven through eight. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. We know about death. It is a shadow that looms over us. Even as the clouds loom over us right now, death looms over all people. It's always looming. Fear and dread, a a phone call, a diagnosis, it's always right around the corner. It's looming. Even past deaths, that's just a shadow over our life. Death is a shadow. And yet Isaiah says, he begins, on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is, all pe- which is over all peoples. Something will happen on this mountain that will swallow up death for all time. And you may know this, that on this mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Son of God was swallowed up by death. He gave himself to die. He died on the cross and he was buried. And then we know that as he was risen from the grave, the hope for Christians is that death has lost its sting. It's lost its sting because what's the sting of death? What's the worst part about death? Well, what happens after death? I gotta go see God and I have sin in my life. And if I think death is bad, wait until I stand before a holy God with sin. And so for Christians, the sting of death is removed because what's on the other side of death for a believer? Eternal life. So the sting has been removed. But hear me, 
a shadow still hangs over our head. Even for Christians, there remains the shadow of death. Our family members still die. Our friends still die. We will still die. And thank you, God, that the sting of death is removed, but there's still a shadow. It still looms. Christians don't escape the shadow of death. Praise God, we don't experience the sting, but the shadow looms ever still. And so, in Isaiah 25, this prophecy is speaking not only of the removal of the sting of death, this prophecy is speaking because of Christ who died and rose again. As we said, that's just a foretaste because the day is coming when the shadow itself will be removed. We will never have death looming over our shoulder ever again. We will never go to a funeral again. We will never grieve over death again. And I want us to to notice the language here in this verse. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. You know, one of the metaphors of death in the Bible is it's, it's always swallowing other things up. The grave is never satisfied. It just swallows and swallows and swallows. And from the first day Adam and Eve sinned against God, the grave has been swallowing up life. But what is this promise? The great swallower will be swallowed up. There's something with a bigger mouth than the grave. (laughs) It's Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection. He will swallow death up for all time. I want to read Revelation chapter 20 as John picks up this very language. Revelation 20 verse 14. Jesus in Revelation 19 and 20 is defeating all of his enemies and the last enemy he swallows up. Let's listen to this. Revelation 20 verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death itself will be picked up by God and thrown away. There will not even be the possibility of death to swallow anything up. Do you know why why is that? There'll be no occasion for death. There'll be no sin. We know that death is the result of sin. Well, sin will be dealt with. Sinners will be either atoned for or cast into the lake of fire. There'll be no more sinners. The saints will have glorified bodies, which means you won't even be able to sin. You will be better than Adam and Eve were in the garden. You will not even be able to be tempted by sin. There will be no curse, no temptation, no sin, therefore no ability to die. Therefore, what's the point of death? What's its purpose? It's gone. It is thrown away. It is swallowed up. And so the saints will be invited to a feast, a celebration, knowing death is swallowed up. This feast doesn't end. There's no, there's no bad news, but it's gonna come in the middle of this feast. And so we see God says, I will celebrate, I will conquer. And then third, and this is, this is a wonderful truth we see in our text. 
God will comfort. God will comfort. Look at verse eight. He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces. God is gonna deal with the trauma that we all experienced in life and in death because of sin. And this phrase is such a wonderful phrase, Lord Yahweh, Lord Yahweh. That word Lord, it means Adonai. It it means God's sovereign power, sovereign. So what this is saying is, is the sovereign, and then it says Yahweh, Lord Yahweh. Yahweh is actually his personal name. It's his promise-keeping name. It's the name he uses when he attaches promises to himself. There's no higher name than Yahweh. And so we see this, this, these two words put together. It's like he's saying, sovereign Yahweh, Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away. And both of those are significant because listen, God has to be powerful enough to deal with tears. All of, many of us, we're children or have children and, and, or we have friends who weep and cry and, and most of the time, we don't have the power to actually really do anything about the problem. We don't have the power. What we can do is provide comfort and we can put our arm around them and we can wipe tears away, but I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the tears keep coming, right? We don't have the power to make them stop. There's something special about God. He has the ability to overcome the reason for tears. This is not an empty comfort. So often our our words of comfort are empty. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes it won't be okay. Sometimes it doesn't go the way we want it to go. But God has the strength to deal with the, the very source of sorrow. Well, what, what is that? How is that? Well, he sent Jesus to deal with sorrow's source, sin, the devil, and death. Jesus was strong enough to not only wipe away the tears, but to deal with the occasion for tears. This kind of makes me think of, and this is the stage of life I'm in, I have a, a few little kids and, and they cry all the time. And I don't know if you can picture maybe the old scenario where there's a bully. Let's say there's a neighborhood bully and neighborhood bully picks on one of the younger kids. Any of, let me ask you this. Any of you kids uh, have younger brothers or sisters? Any of you like a big brother or sister? Any of you? Yeah, big brothers or sisters, right? Okay. Um, you know, we can, we can may sometimes be a little mean to our younger siblings, but it's another thing entirely if someone else is mean to our brothers and sisters, right? It's like, hey, they're my brothers and sisters. Are you messing with my little brother or sister, right? And so we can picture the scenario where if that bully comes around, but you actually are bigger than the bully and, and you can go to the bully and you can say, hey, stop that. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to mess with me if you wanna mess with my little brother or sister. Well, it's a, it's a silly analogy, but did you know Jesus is kind of like that? He doesn't just wipe away our tears. He goes and deals with the bully. 
He goes and deals with the problem. He goes and deals with the one who caused the tears in the first place. And he came and he died on the cross and he rose again and he put the bully in his place. Death and the devil and our sin have been conquered by Jesus. He is strong enough to deal with it. He's the sovereign Lord, but he's also sovereign Yahweh. He's not just powerful. He's compassionate and merciful and tender. He is like a tender father or mother. And I'll confess I'm not the most... um, naturally compassionate person. Um, But God hardwired me that when I hear one of my kids cry instantly in my guts, there's just compassion. I I instantly can't even think about whatever I was doing and I just wanna go and care for my son or daughter and wipe the tears off of their faces. God is powerful and yet he also loves his children. And this verse, Isaiah 25, verse eight, says that he will personally wipe away tears from all faces. The sovereign, strong, conquering God of the Bible will wipe your tears off of your cheeks one day. He doesn't send someone else to do it. He doesn't send some angel. He doesn't send some really holy saint who went before us and he's got the job to wipe away the tears. This job is done by God himself. He stoops to the cares and concerns of his children and he wipes away their tears. That was the very compassion why he sent his son to die on the cross in the first place, to remove the source of sorrow and sickness and sins. And it's one of the things that makes Jesus so wonderful He's not just some almighty, strong kind of guy far away. Jesus himself experienced tears and sorrow and suffering. On the cross, he actually in some mysterious way bore our sorrow and sin on himself. He's not just an impersonal savior. One of my favorite hymns that we've been singing lately, crown him with many crowns. Listen to these words. Crown him the son of man. He's not just Lord far away. He he became a man who every grief has known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own that all in him may rest. The day is coming for those who trust in Jesus when he will come, wipe the tears away from your cheeks and a tear will never flow again. He will wipe them Away, And so we see God will celebrate, he will conquer, he will comfort. And the last promise that we look forward to in this text is this, God will cleanse. God will cleanse. Verse eight says, he'll swallow up death for all time. Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. If you are a little familiar with the Old Testament. God chose out of all the people in the world, he chose one man, Abraham, and he made Abraham a nation, a people, a holy nation, Israel. He didn't choose them because they were great 
be chosen because they were released and he wanted to display, look who I am as I raise up this nation and he saves them from Egypt out of slavery and he gives them his law and his word and he, he gives them the, the promised land, the prime real estate in the Middle East and he blesses them and he says, if you will walk in my commandments, it will go really well for you. But if you don't walk in my commandments, you will become an embarrassment a national embarrassment. You will be a reproach and every nation will see you and just, it'll be embarrassing how bad it will go for you. It's, it reminds me again of uh, maybe a, a toddler in the grocery store throwing a tantrum and the whole building experiences the shame of that kid. Like, man, that's just embarrassing. God says, when you don't walk in my ways, Israel, It'll be like that. I will discipline you in front of the whole world and it will be just reproach. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament and honestly, even, even world history, that has come true. Israel has been an embarrassment. They have, their sin and fall, I mean, they have been the, the tale of the nations almost from their inception. It has come to pass. And in the moment this prophecy was given, they were about to lose the promised land and go into exile. And yet God promised them, the day will come when I will remove your embarrassment. When you will no longer be this national, global, just it's embarrassing to watch. And you will receive your place of honor in the world and in the nations. You will receive, you will, you will be restored to your place of blessing because through you, Israel, I intend to bless the whole world. God promises them, I will restore you. I will remove your reproach. But that verse is, is about more than just the Jews, Israel. Because we have all walked away from God's commandments. Every one of us has rebelled against the holy God who holds us up to his holy standard. We have all gone after pleasures that God has prohibited. We have all sinned in our minds and in our hearts in ways that God alone can see. And you know what, what's sad about our sin? It's, it's proven to be an embarrassment for us too. The most embarrassing aspects of your life and your past are connected to your sin. Sin is an embarrassment. It brings shame on our life, on our reputation. The most shameful things about each of our lives has been our sin against God. God has seen every one of our sins. Our sin is not just a public embarrassment before people, and it is, it's sin against God and, and we will all stand before God. God sees us in our sin and he is holy and he is righteous. And if you know anything about God, he's, he's actually like a good judge who doesn't let offenders off easily. We all look at a judge who lets a perverted criminal off lightly and we say, that's wrong. That is not what a judge should do. Well, God isn't like that. He's a perfect judge, a holy judge, a righteous judge. He sees it that every offense is given its proportional payment and punishment. 
He's holy and right and righteous. He's not some happy man in the sky who looks at your sin and says, let me just sweep it under some cosmic rug and everything is okay. That's not how it works. That's not who God is. And so what hope is there for Israel and their sin and for you and me in our sin? What hope is there? If God is holy and righteous, how can he take away our reproach, our shame? Well, that is why we celebrate Easter. He sent his son who was the only perfect man who obeyed perfectly every command God ever gave him. He lived a perfect, holy life. And then what he did is he then laid down his life like as a sacrificial animal. Punish me, Father, instead of your people. Pour your holy justice for their sin on me. And on the cross, as Jesus hung there, we often, we think of the passion of the Christ and we read it and we think, oh, that must have been really painful. And it was painful. But the pain was not in the physical suffering on the cross. The reason why Jesus was sweating like drops of blood and, and, and prayed, God, if there's any other way, it was because he knew he was about to drink the cup of the holy wrath of God. And on the cross, God poured out his justice and his holiness against all the sin of all God's people. Christ drank that cup, said, I did it, it's empty, I drank it to the full, it is finished. He breathed his last and he died. And yet as we celebrate on Easter morning, he rose again because he was greater than our sin and he was greater than death. And what Christ then offers is if you trust in me, all the shame you deserve for your sin will have been paid by me as I hung naked on the cross, as God poured his wrath out on me so that you can be forgiven, so that you can receive a new robe of righteousness, so that all your shame and all your sin will be taken away and you will be holy and blameless in, in the sight of God. Not because you are holy and blameless on your own, but because of what Christ has done for you. And so that is what we celebrate on Easter morning. And so in this prophecy, it speaks of God's ability to take away the, the reproach, the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt of our sin. And he does it as we trust in Jesus for those who cling in faith to Christ. And then I just want to conclude by these final words in verse 8. It ends with these words, for Yahweh has spoken. And, and why is that there? Because this honestly sounds too good to be true. It sounds too incredible that Jesus would take my sin and my shame and my death and would bring me into his kingdom for eternity to feast with God and his people. It can't be true. I can't believe it. I don't believe it. Well, I just want you to know that this message comes with all the authority of God himself. God has said, this is true. God has said, I have sent my son. And he was a perfect, 
offering for sin. And whoever trusts in him will be invited to the feast, will never experience death again, will be comforted by God himself, and will experience no more sin or sorrow or shame. If you have yet to trust in Christ, this is an open invitation to the greatest gift, the greatest feast, the greatest victory, the greatest comfort, the greatest hope that anyone could ever conceive. You are invited. Come to the feast. Come. Not on your own strength, not on your own merit. You may even think, how can this be true? All you need to know is God said it's true. I'll just trust what God said. This sounds crazy. This sounds too good to be true. I've learned not to trust these kind of offers. Well, I'll tell you, if God says it's true, you can trust it. There is no more trustworthy source than God himself. This is true. You can come today and know that this will be my future. And I just wanna say in love, if you do not come, this is not your future. There is not hope for you in the future. And for all eternity, these promises, this invitation will haunt you as you suffer the just punishment for your sin, away from the joyful presence of God, away from the comforting presence of God, away from the party. You forever will regret not taking up the invitation to come. So I just wanna plead with you, come, come today. And for the saints, Let's just actually cheat and read the next verse. This is our response. This, the prophet then breaks out in song as he hears these things, and it will be said in that day, you will sing these words if you are in Christ on that day. Behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is your hope Christian, this is awaiting you one day. So let's hope in him and let's sing together of what he has done. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for your word that you have proclaimed, these promises that await those who have trusted in Jesus. We thank you for the unimaginable feast that you are preparing. We thank you that you have conquered death and sin, that you have comforted and will comfort your people. And Jesus, that you've taken our sin away even now as far as the east is from the west. We thank you, Jesus. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to impress these great promises deeper on us as we still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Would we believe that you are with us and these truths are true for us and the day will come when even the shadow of death is removed and we will feast with you in all eternity. I thank you, Lord, for those who are in you that it is well with their soul right now that they are secure because of what Christ has accomplished 2,000 years ago. And they have these precious promises to hope in, that they will see you very soon, face to face. And Lord, I do pray that your spirit, you Holy Spirit, would, would stir those who have yet to rest and trust in the good news of Jesus, that they would hear your loving extension to come to the feast to come to Christ where they no longer need to fear death 
or deal with their shame alone, but they can have hope because of what you have done. So Lord, lead us now in, in song when we rejoice and sing. You are worthy to be worshiped even now. And, and then Lord, we'll um, feast even in a small way on communion together. It's in Jesus' name, amen.